If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 142 is Rebecca Rigo, a songwriter currently based in Louisville, Kentucky. She's had six releases since 2007. You're right now hearing Call My Mother from Tolono by her band Rebecca Rigo and the Trainmen. We're going to be discussing a song called Mama from her 2020 Songs for Cleaning Women Part 1 EP. That is a solo record, then we'll turn to the last Trainman album, that's 2019's Speaking of Witches, the song is No One Knows Me. Then we'll look all the way back to a song called Gave Me, her band was called Rigo at the time, the album is From the Royal Arcade, 2009. We'll conclude by listening to Cruel from 2016's Lay These Weapons Down. For more information, please see RebeccaRigoAndTheTrainmen.com. For more about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And while you're there, check the upper right-hand corner for a link to easily leave a rating and review of the show. And if you really like it, you can go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. At any support level, you can get ad-free versions of every episode and some bonus content, including the notes where I dissect the songs. So I'll play a little of Call My Mother from Tolono 2014 as an introduction just to get your sound out there. That was your first album with the current band, with the Trainmen. Yeah, do you want to talk about that? We're going to get pretty closely to the the newest Songs for Cleaning Women, Part 1, EP, 2020. You want to talk about that transition there? It's a solo EP that I've kind of been working on for the last four years outside of the work with my band. And I've been writing the songs based on short stories that were written by a woman named Lucia Berlin. And she wrote a lot in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And she died in 2004. And then posthumously, they put out her work of her short stories called Manual for Cleaning Women. And I kind of got that, fell in love with it, read all the stories over and over, and then sort of started to write my own work based on that. So that's where this newest EP has come from. Yes, we're going to hear Mama, first single from that, You've made it clear this is not an an autobiographical song. Say a little about before so they know what to expect. It is semi-autobiographical about Lucia Berlin. She writes a lot about her family and her life. And this was a relationship. She had a very complicated relationship with her mother. Lucia was an alcoholic. Her mother was an alcoholic. They both dealt with those addiction issues. And then they both just kind of had a tumultuous relationship. And the song's based on the story in the book called Mama where she's talking to her sister after her mother dies and they're talking about their relationship and just things that they've been through and kind of now looking back on that relationship after she's died and things they regret and things they loved about her. Mama said nothing good ever comes from love You soak your pillow with tears and smoke two cigarettes at once And she'd ride me all suicide notes At least I knew she'd think about me before she'd go She saw law when she moved to Mexico Wouldn't even let her in when she got sick and came home and There's a story God wrote about us Before we could even talk There's a wind Laws across Texas And they buried you under the stars And I think about you now In the ground I put her on a boat when she was just 19 She chain-smoked with the captain Laughed and drank gin she was off then to marry it All the things she could have done if she wasn't run by men There's a story God wrote about us 
This latest EP is a pretty lush arrangement. I like that this one kind of was going back to your nylon string roots. Is that where you started? Is that, this is nylon string? There's definitely some of that in there for sure. And I started playing classical guitar when I was like nine years old. So yeah, I definitely incorporated a little bit of that on this new record. And it was the first time kind of producing something on my own. So I dove in and was just like, didn't have anyone else to sort of collaborate with. I was like, really just kind of trying to do this on my own and think about how I wanted these songs to sound kind of based on the landscape of the writing and like how the writing made me feel and sort of translate that way. Well, and it's got that intimate, I guess I wanted to ask you about your singing style. So this one, especially at the beginning of it, has that, I wrote, melodic muttering (laughs) that can be very intimate and come from love, you know, that you're not pushing it in any way. Is that just a matter of conveying the tone of this story? Do you want to tell us kind of more about the story that you were basing this on and how you were interpreting that? The way I wanted to sing this is almost like in a storytelling mode, a more intimate sort of recording. And the story is told in the first person. So it's basically, it's Lucia. She's talking to her sister. They're just having a conversation about their mother. They're talking about the things they loved about her and the things that they didn't love about her and the things that frustrated them about her and how they kind of wish that they could have been closer with her during her life. But she never really allowed that. She had just too much pain to sort of open up to them the way that they really would have loved. But then when you go into the chorus, it becomes a little more of a lullaby, really pretty melody. You've got the Texas throwing that up there. And it turns to second person that you're talking, I think, about you in the ground. Why the sort of switch in scene here? That's not really even in the story. It's just like sort of thinking of an idea of if she's driving out where you come from, you know, they were from Texas. They were born there, her and her sister, and her mother was born there. And there's a lot of Texas in Lucia's writing, and she's influenced by a lot of other Texas writers. And the idea of driving out where you come from and just thinking about your family and how you're intrinsic with the land that you were born and raised in. And that was just sort of like an extra idea that I came to when thinking about the story. And it it does, it kind of comes into that. She's thinking about her mother in the ground. Well, and you don't typically have steel guitar on your stuff, right? Was this sort of a nod to the Texas? This is a, I don't want to say a country song in whole. I mean, it's still folk, but evoking that atmosphere a little bit, at least in place of strings or keys or something else. I mean, there's a little bit of that for sure. Like thinking about the idea of like the Southern border and like that's sort of where the nylon string guitar comes in. It feels like very romantic and like Spanish in a way or you know, yeah, we have the steel guitar. We had just other, just like atmospheric sounds. I wanted it to feel like nighttime as well. I wanted it to feel like quieter. And that came into the production for sure. So are you playing the nylon string lead guitar as well? It really blends very well. It's absolutely beautiful. It's Tom Nato is my partner and we live together. And so he actually plays nylon string guitar on that. So he worked on this record with me. He plays a lot, ton of different instruments. And so, yeah, I play the acoustic, the lead acoustic on that. And then he played it, the nylon string guitar. I was thinking they were both nylon string because the lead lines are so nicely Spanishy, as you were saying. But you're saying that's you playing that on steel? 
Yeah, I'm just playing the arpeggios. There's an interesting structural thing in this where it looks like you're going to start the second verse. She disowned Laura when she moved to Mexico, but it's just the two lines and then whoop, we're up to the chorus and you never do that again. Was this a lyric sheet first? How are you mapping this onto where the sections are going to go in the song here? I mean, I think a lot of my writing, it comes out kind of in one fell swoop. Usually it'll just be like, you know, sort of playing. And then, you know, the lyrics are kind of moving along with the music. And sometimes the way the story is told, it's sort of like, flops out in this way that's not super the same every time. And I think sometimes with my band, we battle about that (laughs) and like fixing things and moving it into a more like rigid form. But for this, I was like, you know, this is just like a story and it's coming to me the way it's coming to me. And I want it to just feel that flow. And so with this recording, we really did try to just keep it that way. It was just like, okay, these are the way these songs were written. This is the story that I'm hearing. And so let's move the music around that story. And when you recorded it, were you even using a click track? I noticed there's little stops here and there. Just in terms of the tempo, it seems pretty free. I think for this one, we didn't. Maybe we didn't even use a click track on any of this album. I think that we just kind of, we went for it. We had a friend of ours, Tobias Bank. He lives in Colorado. He was making this record with us. We made this record out in California. We were kind of all out there doing some stuff. And, you know, he plays the percussion and the drum parts on it. And so... Yeah, we. I don't think we did it to a click. We, he might have had like a little bit of a click in the beginning, but yeah, no. I think it was just kind of free time. Let me just pull out one section here, the end. And she hated to see the scroll and do well. Some of these choruses have a greater or smaller extra tag of soloing, you know, and then you use that to wind the song up. Again, can you say something about how that evolved? If you recorded your part entirely first, was it that you just left, okay, I've left this much room to solo in, fill that, or did you guys, the two of you work on this together to get the arrangement threshed out before you recorded it? No, I think I recorded it first, and I think I did the arpeggio part first, and then Tom just sort of came in afterwards and did the overdub of the nylon string, that lead part, and he feels it and can feel the vibe of where parts need to be filled and where there needs to be space. And I think that he just came in and did it that way. I mean, it sounds like there were not demos of these songs, that it was just, I'm recording the actual part. You know, I've written the song, here it is. And we'll just build it from there rather than your normal, what you do to to get this solo demoed and then train it up with the band. That I mean, is this a different move for you? This one for sure. It kind of had a totally different vibe when I was going into the studio to record this song specifically. It was faster. It had like more of a upbeat kind of feel. And I remember thinking like, this isn't right. And sort of reworking the vibe of it and sort of reworking even some of the lyrics of it right before we recorded it. The whole process of this specific recording was very like extemporaneous. It was like, let's all just get together. I was going on a tour out to the West Coast. And so Tom, my partner, he's also a musician. So he was just on tour as well out there. And then we had some other friends that were working on some music. So we all kind of met up in California at this studio called uh, Panoramic Studios. And we just decided to work on this music together. And it was very just like off the cuff. We were like, okay, you know, I was be like, here's the songs. This is what I'm thinking. This is the vibe I'm thinking. Like, let's just make something and let's make it as quick as possible, as creatively as possible as well. Well, let's get a second song out on the table that is by the full band Rebecca Rigo and the Trainmen from Speaking of Witches 2019. The song that I picked from there was No One Knows Me. It's not the single, it's the longest song. I just wanted to pick something that it's a long <laughs> that really showed, you know, the interaction of the band and the song itself is a uh, normal length. It just has this extra long instrumental bridge kind of tacked in there as well as this very long introduction. Yeah. Can you say a little about that before we actually hear it? That song is super fun to record. We recorded that record three years ago now, and we did it live in the room together. We did it at a studio in northern Wisconsin called April Bass. You know, a lot of times we work a lot of things out before we go to the studio with the band, but this song, we kind of started with that cello part that comes in. You know, our uh, cello player, Jack, had written that riff, 
And I was like, oh, I really want to just like write something based around this riff. So lyrics came together with that riff. But then a lot of the other members of my band have been to school for jazz music. And so sometimes like some of that comes in as well. And some of like the composing can start some of those songs like in that way where they're sort of like vibing and like jamming together a little bit. And that's sort of what happened with this song is like, you know, there was a little bit of writing going on in the studio and we're like, oh, that would be a really beautiful intro. And then there's sort of like developed this longer outro part that sort of moved into all these different beautiful piano parts. And it was just so nice because it reminded me of the changing seasons. Like I really love this song because to me, we recorded the song when it was cold outside and but it almost felt like it was transitioning into like a spring or like a summer at the end of it. Thank you. 
So you've answered my main question, which is that cello riff being a central thing. Is this song officially credited as co-written by you and the band rather than just you? I mean, most of the songs on that album are, we share writers of most of the songs just because everyone's kind of working together to like build these stuff together. So I'm just always interested in even just the business aspects and paying royalties after the fact. And just do you at least like, well, it's lyrics by Rebecca and then music by the band. So publishing wise, then you would have 50% plus the 20% or, you know, or something like that. Or is it really an even split because you want to be democratic? I mean, it's an even split. And honestly, I wish we had to worry about it more. It's definitely something to like dive deeper into. But, you know, as far as our music goes, it's it's always been a struggle just to get it to pay for itself. So we're working on that constantly. But yeah, it's right now for making music. For most people, it's hard to get that. But that is something I tend to do is, you know, split the writer side evenly when we do full band recordings because we're all sort of like putting a foot into writing. You know, I do come to the band with lyric and usually there's like a chord progression happening there. So I'll come to them with a song that's like chords and lyrics. But a lot of times that gets changed into something else and we'll, you know, manipulate and kind of move it around a lot. So, All right. Well, we'll see when you hit the big time and the lawyers move in and advise you to uh, protect your, (laughs) because I'm sorry to tell you, but the lyrics and the chords, that is the song, according to almost everybody I talked to on here. So you're very uh, generous with your pittance. But for this one, you were saying there are two guys with the jazz players. Can I guess it's the, the bass player and the piano player? In No One Knows Me, yes. It is, yes. Because this whole opening, yeah, with this uh, cello and piano duet, I mean, was that something that you even had on your radar when you brought this song in? Or was this just entirely something they came up with together? Yeah, they just came up together with it together. We're just sort of sort of working on things and yeah, just kind of playing free in a way. That's the one thing I really like about those guys is they just have like a very honest way of playing. And sometimes things like this come out of it. And did they come up with that, though, after you had already been playing the rest of the song? So it was at least sort of related as opposed to just a freeform jam that then you're like, oh, let's transition that into this song. Yeah, they wrote it based on like having it be an intro. It was written kind of to like move into this song. We had the song itself, like the sort of like meat and potatoes of it. Then it was just like a late night thing where they developed this intro and then the outro sort of came out of that as well. So the vocal delivery of this, we'll get back to the arrangement, but I drive you around, I just listen to the Southeast Turn, I find you at Every Turn. That, I thought that was an interesting rhyming Southeast Turn with Every Turn, torturing the word every to make that thing work. I drive around, I just listen to Southeast Still fine. It totally flows. I mean, I really like this driving at night kind of feel to this song. Can you say something about making your decisions on how you're delivering the lines in this one? I was just thinking back to a time when I was listening to Southeastern. It's referring to Jason Isabel album, Southeastern. So it's kind of referring back to a time when I was listening to that album. You know, a lot of people get on an album and they just listen to that album over and over. Sometimes I'll just keep an album in my car or whatever, you know, when, especially when we had CDs, I would just have a CD in my car for like a year. That's all I would listen to. So that's sort of referring to that. It's referring to like the time where I was just listening to that album over and over and then thinking about an experience during that time with that person. And I like when people do that. I, sometimes I like when people rhyme the same word with it. It's almost like it's not a rhyme. It's just like using the same word. We were recently producing an album you know, we produce some work for people here at the house and we were recently producing an album for a woman from Colorado and she had that too. She, ha- I think she read like plan with plan or something. And I was like, I really like that. It's just like something you don't expect to happen. And I just, I like throws people for a loop sometimes. And this again has the sort of soft, intimate thing. When you actually get to the chorus, I really like your descending line down to do there. Very sort of mournful. I don't know, any particular inspiration for that kind of delivery? Are you channeling something in particular that you know of? 
singing and performing is, in a way, it's acting. You know, you're calling on emotions that you've had and channeling them into, like, the way that you're singing something or the emotion that you're feeling from the music, and then that's translating through how you're going to sing it. And I feel like part of it has to do with the way that it's being played and, you know, the intensity of that and where that's coming from. And I think it's just when we're playing together and recording something, we're all feeding off emotions that we've had. We've been playing together now for eight years. And so we've shared a lot of experiences together. There's been times where we all live together and there's been times we haven't. So we know each other very well. So I think sometimes when I write this music, it's almost like they're feeling the emotions I'm feeling. You know, we're all kind of working on it together. When I had read this, the Oh, how I'm always so far away is this is a road song. This is something written on tour. Now you tell me that your partner is touring with you. So it's not that. He's in a few bands and One of them is on the West Coast before COVID, before all these times, but he was on tour by himself. Gotcha. All right. I did not look. So he is not the guitarist on this song. Yeah, this is a completely different, no overlapping players with the first song. No, no, no. Yeah, this is all uh, different people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked a little about the, the instrumental. So once we really get going in about two and a half minutes or so in, you have a really nice bass solo. I'm surprised the drums are so restrained throughout this that there's, you know, really nice brushwork, but it really just kind of keeps things pushing very light. It never, like the bass that explodes <laughs> and there's some really loud piano stuff in there, but the drums all stay very under control to keep the tension going. Yeah, I think that's kind of part of it, you know. I'm not exactly sure how they came to that, but <laughs> that was sort of when we were doing it together, this sort of felt like how that how the drum should fit in there. There's a little of your acoustic in here, right? No, I think there is some electric guitar that our other guitar player plays. But yeah, there's no acoustic guitar on it that I know of. So it seems like after you say, no one knows me like you do, then something new can happen. You wait until after the first half of the chorus and then some new little stuff can be introduced as opposed to just introducing it at the beginning of the chorus, which is kind of normally what you do to say, hey, this is a different section, but you kind of keep the low tension there. Just going into the second half of the chorus, I did hear a bling. No, like, okay, there was some acoustic there, but you're saying that wasn't even you. Wasn't me. Yeah, it might have been. <laughs> we did like an overdub or something like that. Yeah, I think we might have done. You know, you get done and sometimes you're like, oh, we really need there. We need something to go. We need something to go. Bing. We need, you know, just to kind of like take the listener's ear in a new direction. And I'm sure that's sort of what happened. Let's stop to talk about our sponsor, Nebbia by Moen. It is a showerhead. It's a very fancy showerhead because it's designed to completely immerse you. Its spray is 81% more powerful than the competition, and it uses 45% less water. That is crazy. Nebbia is backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook. It's designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers. They spent years researching and developing the superior shower experience that can be yours just as it already is mine. It feels like I'm showering under a waterfall. It is very soothing, recharging, rinses very effectively. I got the model that also has the optional handheld attachment, the wand. I'm not sure why I thought a regular head height sprout of water was good for washing feet before. I cannot go back. And it's got easy self-installation. Nebbia by Moen can be installed in 15 minutes or less without the need for contractors, plumbers. If you can change a light bulb, you can do this. I did it. So upgrade your bathroom. And, you know, they also have accessories like shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, bath mats. All this stuff pairs perfectly with the shower's stunning design. The Nebbia by Moen Shower Spa starts at just $199. And for Nakedly Examined Music listeners, we have a deal for you. The first 100 people to use the code NEM at Nebbia.com will get 15% off all Nebbia products. Nebbia really does deals like this, so there's a great deal to jump on. Go to nebbia.com slash N-E-M, that's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer. The first 100 people to use the code N-E-M when checking out will save 15% off all Nebbia products. Again, that's nebbia.com slash N-E-M. Use that code N-E-M for Nakedly Examined Music to save 15%. Let's get the third song out there. Gave me, you had two versions of, which the first one even had a different name. The best thing you ever gave me, maybe. Is that what the first one's called? 
Yeah, so the first one was on the 2007 Learning to be Lonely album. The one we're actually going to hear right now is from the Royal Arcade, 2009, 2010, somewhere in there. Yeah, do you want to say a little about how this one evolved? They say you have a decade to write your first album and (laughs) two months to write your second album. Clearly, so this was your first, from the Royal Arcade, this was your first full band album? That was my first full band album. It was a totally different band that I played with in Chicago in like 2004 to like maybe 2011 or 12. And just a great group of people that I'm still in touch with some of them for sure and uh, still good friends with. We did a couple albums together and I was in college and then moved to Chicago in 2003 or 2004, just kind of on my own got a little apartment there and started just going to open mics every night and meeting people and becoming kind of part of the music scene in Chicago. And I think this was one of the first songs I wrote, like right after that happened, you know, and I would just bring it to the open mics and play it for people and sort of starting to develop your songwriting style and what you want. But yeah, and then I recorded it and then liked it and wanted to do it again with the full band because we had been playing it together.
So I noticed between the two versions, the second one that folks just heard even slows down a little more. You know, just from the very beginning of the song, as relaxed as possible while still retaining the swing. You can't slow it down too much or it's not going to swing anymore. Apparently you'd played this at a million open mic nights before this point. You say something about the evolution to this final version where it becomes this very quarter note heavy clanging band thing. I think it was just the idea of, you know, reimagining it for a band was how it kind of started. And I have to think back so, so deep here because <laughs> I think it came out. I mean, this album came out maybe 11 years ago now or 10 years ago. That album was, it was a lot to put together. You know, we were trying to do it at all sorts of different times. And I think we did a lot of overdubbing when we kind of came together. And we were forming as a band when we were kind of making that album. I think we came together and we were like, oh, you know, let's start playing music. And then like, let's start making songs together. And then we made this album. And I think it was just... I didn't have a lot of insight on to what I wanted or did not want for music. I think it was, let's all get together. Let's be in a room. What comes out is going to come out. Stephanie, that was our drummer, Stephanie White, at the time, she interpreted it on drums. And I think a lot of times drums kind of inform the rest of the song. And I think that's what happened is like, she brought that with her drum interpretation. And then we sort of followed suit with the rest of that arrangement. So I take it she was a rock drummer rather than having any kind of jazz pretensions. Yeah, she is definitely a rock drummer. She still is a rock drummer, yeah. I would expect, if you just gave me this and say, play drums over it, that I would want to do some, at least some Ringo kind of swing. And I just, you know, this is just so, she gives a nice little kickoff into the chorus, but otherwise it's just really <laughs> just smacking you during those sections, which because, you know, you have it stop and then come back, you know, it's a really effective tool in adding a dimension to this that wasn't there in the acoustic version as much as I like the acoustic version. It's a different vibe. But yeah, she was a rock drummer and she had a propensity for like loud playing. So do you remember what the circumstances for actually writing this in the first place? You were in college when you wrote this? You came to Chicago with this already in hand? I might have wrote it right after I moved to Chicago. And I think I just wrote it about a friend of mine and the idea that I can remember it because it was really one of the first songs when I moved to Chicago. I grew up in southeastern Wisconsin. Most of my family still lives there. And when I graduated from college, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I had like an artist when I was in college and he really taught me a lot about what it meant to just live a free life. The idea that you can do whatever you want as long as you don't let fear interrupt you. And so I started working through that a lot. I started to be like, I'm not afraid of being alone. I'm not afraid of going to a new city and not knowing anybody. And that's what happened. Like I, I moved to Chicago on my own. And just kind of dove right in and started working on art. And I kind of never stopped. It's been like 15 years later and still keep moving around to different cities and doing different stuff. And I really love that. So the song's got some of the situation of moving away, trying to love someone from Spain, from 5,000 miles away. You're like Joan of Arc. How does that fit in here? You know, I was listening to a lot of Josh Ritter. I think it was like a lyric where I thought maybe he would have that. I think that was where that came from. You take from so many different people and you're constantly listening to people's lyrical styles and how they work. And I remember I was listening to a ton of that at the time. So maybe that was it. Just reaching out into there. It's such a nice little song. And you're sort of like that person, that religious extremist who was burned at the stake. Just, I'll just throw that in there to this nice little song. You know, where I grew up, and I think a lot of people live like this, you know, it's like they grow up, they have like a plan. We used to call it the plan. You grow up, you get married, you have children, you do those things, you know, and those are wonderful things to do. But if you're kind of like going to go and do something a little bit different, if you're like, I don't want to do those things, I want to go do something else. And maybe I'm going to be broke and maybe I'm going to not have a husband or have a wife and I'm going to do something different. It does feel a little bit like you're ostracized or you do feel a little bit like you're on a crusade or you're doing something like kind of out there. And it's not to that extreme, but artists battle with that. They do a lot. The idea of feeling like they don't fit in. The singing style on this, I'm wanting to make a segue between the attitude, but this is kind of your blues singing style. I see this on a lot of your tunes where you're constantly the tiny, tiny, but where it almost sounds flat some of the time, like especially in the previous version of this. I don't want this to sound offensive. I've, I enjoyed both of the versions. No, it doesn't. I'm not offended at all. Because I've run into this myself when I'm mixing one of my albums or something 
when you're trying to go blue, that you're purposefully trying to hit against the bottom of the note, <laughs> rather. Has this been a sort of an ongoing thing as how much blue are you going to put on any given line delivery? <laughs> you know, I wasn't a singer growing up. I didn't learn a lot about singing. I think I was just like, I really want to write songs and I'm going to start singing them. And I feel like getting into spaces vocally has been just such a long battle and journey. And I think a lot of times when I was younger, I was like, okay, here we go. Like, what's going to happen? What's going to come out, you know, while you're singing? And I bet I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, like when I was, when I recorded that album, you know, back then. So I can't tell you that it was something I thought about. I know it was probably something that I was just like, here I am. This is how I'm going to sing this song. And I think as I age and keep working on music, I keep, you know, diving deeper into the vocal part of it. And my ear's a little bit better too, where I'm like, oh God, we have to redo that or fix that, you know, kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of learning in that album and just sort of like, okay, I'll... Did you start doing the vocal breathing exercises at some point and the, you know, the whole normal... Yeah, I do that now. Yeah, now I do it. Do you do that? I do. And it was a big... Because I think like you, the reason that I started singing or enjoyed it is because without having any technique at all and without busting out anything, had it, you know, a reasonably pleasant tone of voice. <laughs> Like that's the starting point. And so, you know, this muttering thing that I was referring to that some of these songs, even now that you can really have where you have a lot more American Idol uh, vocal strength behind you, you can still retreat back to that. You know, sometimes I miss the old vocal style of just sort of singing like you talk, but melodically, but then it just becomes a whole different exercise to like open up this different part of your voice where you can bust. And especially when you then get in a full band setting, because I also had that where I was playing by myself a lot, but then you get with these people that are playing very loudly and you feel like you need to, like even now I might raise a song by a fifth or something so that I'm singing in a range that will actually cut through. Whereas by myself, recording by myself, especially if you don't have to get it and perform it at all, it's just a completely different palette that you have to work with. You're constantly trying to fit your voice into whatever the situation is. And it comes back to that kind of acting mode. You know, it comes back to that idea of, you know, you're the actor in that situation. And training your voice, I kind of just didn't think about it for years. I think there's a lot of people, even like I do a lot of work with different people in the studio now. And I'm also a personal chef, so I'll go to studios and I'll cook for bands and stuff while they're making records. And I, I just really like to be around music in whatever way possible. But a lot of times I'll get in the studio and I'll say like, somebody's about to do vocals. And I'm like, are you going to warm up? Or like, what are you going to, and they're like, no, no. And I'm like, oh my God, let's, we got to get some warm ups going here. It'd be like not tuning your guitar before you're going to start playing. You have to get your body like ready to make that move and do those things. And I think it, it takes a long time to learn that and sort of work with the air. And I'm still definitely in the very infancy stages of trying to figure it out, but it's definitely important. Yes. I found, it's not like I'm ongoing taking voice lessons, something I did a long time ago, learned the exercises, pull them out to work myself back up to performance level. But when I haven't, am not sort of in shape, but want to record something that really busts, I could do it, but I could only do it like twice. And then... <laughs> So if that's the the kind of honesty you want to have in there, if, if just coming from zero to 60, like, well, you better get it the first shot. Totally. And you think about the people that can sing like that. You know, if you think about like Aretha Franklin or like when you listen to like staple singers or somebody like that and how their voices have become this just like beautiful instrument where they can call on that and just summon it at a whim and do it over and over. It's just an incredible thing. We've looked at three different bands that you've been in here or, you know, recording setups where I would think that it seems like the trainmen are more sensitive in terms of you can sing more quietly. You can't, I mean, at least all of it's in the mixing, obviously, but no one knows me. You know, you've got this full band that has a lot of power to it, but you're able to still whisper over it. How does this one work live? Are you able to do that live that they're all sensitive enough or was this a mixing feat? When we play it live, it's definitely like that. I think that our band works together with like a lot of dynamics. And honestly, we're still learning about that in general. But as we keep working together, as we keep making new albums, you know, right now we're currently working on our fourth album. So we did a little bit of work on that a couple weeks ago. Now we're going to go do a little bit more as a full band. It's interesting to just to see how we grow. But, you know, learning to make space for each other 
in a full band situation is 90% of it. Figuring out like when it's your turn to like get in and when it's your turn to get out. And I think if everyone's just trying to be in all the time, like it's never going to work. Speaking of which is we do a great job of that. And it's easier to sing that way. It's easier to have inflections and tell the story when you have space to do that. Yeah, on this version of Gave Me, it seems like that's a little more of a struggle, not just because of the loud drums, but when the organ is there, the organ is blaring through or these lead guitar riffs. The lead guitar on the first song we talked about on Mama is so subtle and, you know, fits the mood. Whereas this one on, I know the whole song on You Gave Me, this version is kind of a little more showy, but there's nothing subtle about the lead guitar riffs on here. It's not just a little wheedling that comes in and out. It's like loud riffs that are playing repeatedly that you kind of have to make space for. You know, they can't be on top. They even fight a little bit with the lead vocal I saw in the, like around the last verse where you're, continuing to sing that and he's still playing more or less what he was playing before and it just doesn't jibe quite as nicely. I'm just searching for a loophole in time or a strain theory that could make you mine again. I would agree with that for sure. You know, it's interesting to kind of like look back on some of that work and be like, oh, wow, this is really like different. And that's part of it. And I think recording that album, there's a lot of things that would probably be different now that we're older and played music longer. And, you know, I think when we were 22, 23 or something like that, I was just like, man, let's just go for it. I don't know if we knew if we were a rock band or what we knew. We were, we were just excited to be playing music in a room and learning together. I was surprised that some of the things that were really nice from the earlier version, the 2007 version, just got dropped for this. That you did have, you know, it was mostly acoustic, but you had a nice little piano part that kind of comes in halfway. And there's no remnant of that. There's vocal harmony in the original version that just went away for this band version. Had they even heard the previous version, presumably? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they didn't. I can't remember exactly how we all came together to do that. It's, you know, this is a really interesting interview because it's like, Rebecca Rigo, this is your life. <laughs> and music wise, I haven't really thought about some of this stuff in very many years. It sounds like you were just a little less uptight even in your early years about arrangements. Whereas, I don't know, if I hear something, even if it's like a solo demo I recorded with a little lead lick on it, then that lead lick becomes... If you listen to it enough times, it becomes part of the song. If that's not there anymore, then you feel like the song is not being played correctly. And so I would try to get, you know, then introducing that in a band, like, okay, can somebody acknowledge that one little thing? And it might even evolve so that, you know, I had a band where I'd, I had a guitar part that had a little thing in it. I was playing bass in the new band. I ended up doing that riff on bass because I just wanted it to be there somehow. And the guitarist was clearly not going to do it. <laughs> so I guess likewise, like with these vocal harmonies, Clearly, you were not so attached to them that, well, somebody's got to do them. I've got to overdub them or something on the new version. I don't think I was attached to them in that way. And I think it was just the idea of like, okay, we're going to come together and like make a new song. And, you know, the thing about that other EP is that I never really played that song that way out live with those people. That was an EP that kind of just got built in the studio. It was the first... Like just to have a demo for other purposes? It was, yeah. It was something that like I first moved to Chicago. I thought I want to record the songs that I've just written here the last few months. I went in the studio. I laid all those acoustic guitar, played those songs, and then had some friends come in and, and overdub on top of them. And then that's what came from that. So I think that the version that came later in the Royal Arcade version, it became more of the version that I knew and like wanted to play. That was the way we had played it live. I never played the other one live. I'm trying to connect this to sort of when I was at that stage, but I was at this stage in the 90s where studio time was more expensive. So there's no chance that I would have moved to a new town. Damn it. Actually, I did this. I, I moved to Austin in 94 and like pretty much the only time I've paid for studio time, because I usually just record things myself or go in and have it mixed professionally or whatever. But in 1995, I have an, a studio EP of five songs that I went in and uh, I guess it's a similar thing. But that was, seemed like a big deal. And actually, I got my somehow got my bandmates to help me cover the cost because I don't know if I could have done it <laughs> even with five songs at that point. It was expensive. <laughs> I remember it was expensive for that. EP, I remember this studio was doing a thing where they had like a package and they're like, here's the package. You can come in, you can do two days, 
you record, we'll mix it. I think I had somebody else master it for like 75 bucks or something. But like, it was like the whole thing was like 1200 bucks. It was pretty cheap to like do it all in like one swoop. And I I was bartending. I thought I had a million dollars because like (laughs) I was bartending in Chicago. You know, in the early 2000s, I, was, I wasn't making that great of money, but I thought like at the time, you know, you were just making a bunch of cash and you'd work till like 2 a.m., four or five nights a week. And yeah, so I saved up a money and I was like, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to have some recording if I'm going to keep doing this. And I kind of put money down to do that. And I've kept doing it, I guess. I have like, this is the ninth album. I just keep <laughs> pouring it in. <laughs> As you continue to do it, if you know that you have a system in place that, okay, I have a fan base, I have other people are splitting costs with me, there's, but that first initial outlay, I think a lot of people just don't get past that point because they, they do not believe themselves $1,200 worth to be able to just do that. <laughs> it's a scary, yeah, it's a scary amount of money. Like, I mean, when I tell people sometimes how much it costs to make albums and, you know, the albums that I made have been all over the map uh, monetarily, they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, yeah, I know. It's just a really crazy life. This is weird. Let's wrap up here by introducing the last one, another really nice studio recording, Cruel from Lay These Weapons Down 2016. I think I had heard in another interview that, speaking of which, is the third album with that Trainman group was a little more rapid fire in terms of the recording. But these first two albums by that group, Ladies Weapons Down and the one that we heard at the beginning, Tolono, am I right that these were sort of more deliberate? It seems very well produced is what I'm trying to say. Tolono, we just did in one swoop. We just did that four days, similar to Speaking of Witches. So we just did that in a room together and kind of like went for it. But this album, Ladies Weapons Down, yeah, it was definitely drawn out. We kind of did everything. Basically started with drums, bass, you know, and kind of like put it all together and then mixed it that way. So yeah, this was a a longer process that we took to make this album. I picked this one in particular because it just was so catchy. And you have definitely a few songs on every album that just are that kind of catchy that stick with you that are, you know, focusing on that hook. It's hard to say what would become the big single because there's a disconnect in terms of like, well, who would I have to send this to for it to become the big single? Like, what does that even mean? You're just releasing them all in the same way. But definitely there's an attitude just in the songwriting that this could be a the catchy single. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's kind of a catchy single. I love that song. I think it's beautiful. I really like the guitar part on that song. I like how the acoustic guitar parts kind of like intertwine. And it was definitely a beautiful song that I was glad to record. I really like the drums on that song too. They're just, I like, you know, the brushes and the way they're all kind of mixed together. But what was the other steamroller, I guess, was the single single on that album. That was the song that we had a video for that we pushed and that was like, was played on some college radio and some things like that. So that was sort of the single from that album. There were several that I flagged, even the title track. I can just hear that very clearly in my head. What's next? Are you working on volume two here of Songs for Cleaning Women, part two? Songs for Cleaning Women, part two, probably we'll dive into at some point down the road, maybe this spring. There's definitely, the songs are definitely there. And I want to keep working on those just because I've developed a community sort of like with the people that love Lucia Berlin. And, you know, we've been doing some podcasts and some work together and I'm friends with Lucia's children. And so I just kind of want to keep developing that. So that'll happen sometime this year, hopefully. And then full band, we have been recording another full length album. We've been working on it this whole January. So hopefully we'll just kind of keep plugging away and that'll be out later this year. Working remotely? No, we're actually, we did a little bit of work remotely, but then, you know, we have been getting together, getting tested and sort of getting together and doing some recording together in a like isolated situation. We'll like go to the middle of nowhere and kind of work on some stuff together. So. Well, very nice. Thanks for doing this. Really enjoyed listening to your tunes. Thank you so much for diving so deep into this. It's been really interesting for me, myself. All right, here's Cruel.
you could take what you want. Thanks so much to Rebecca. A really fun discovery. She reached out to me directly, which is a great way to get on the show. Remember, you can find more about her at RebeccaRigoAndTheTrainMen.com. I'm hoping you're subscribed directly to this podcast through the Nakedly Examined Music feed. If not, head on over to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com or look us up on your desired podcast app. My next interview is with Eric Dover, who was an Ozzy Osbourne sideman, the lead singer for Slash's Snake Pit, touring member of Jellyfish, and lead singer of its offshoot Imperial Drag, currently playing with some of those same Jellyfish guys in the Licorice Quartet. So come back for that. I've also just recently interviewed Dennis Davison from the band The Jigsaw Scene, which is a really tuneful, awesome 60s retro kind of thing. If you enjoy this podcast a lot, I hope you will leave a rating and review on iTunes or elsewhere, and perhaps head on over to patreon.com slash music to support the show at a small per-episode level. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you're doing well. And most of all, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Vincent Meyer signing off.